Well, good morning again. Again, my name is Mitch Clausen, and I have the joy of working here alongside John, and I specifically am able to uh, spend a lot of time uh, with the youth uh, in this community and also in uh, the broader neighborhood, and it's a, it's a joy to actually join you now in a time of preaching. And uh, we've been leaning into this series called The Rule of Life. And if that makes no sense to you at all, uh, it's essentially a series on spiritual practices that we integrate uh, into the schedules in order that we may be formed into the likeness of Jesus, even if it's one degree of glory at a time. Uh, if you... If, you are still further confused in, after the sermon of what the rule of life is. Uh, outside in our very small foyer, we have some booklets uh, uh, that explain more what that looks like, particularly within our community. And so in this summer series, all of, uh, all of us who are preaching are preaching on a practice, something that we have integrated into our lives as a spiritual habit to form us more into the likeness of Jesus. And a foundation scripturally for that that we are returning to week after week is Romans 12, 1 through 2. It's a familiar passage to those of you who have been in the church for some time, and yet it's a beautiful one written by St. Paul. So at this time, I encourage you to, to stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God what is good, what's well-pleasing, and perfect. This is the Word of the Lord. And you can have a seat. And so when you hear this passage read in the context of a series on spiritual disciplines or spiritual habits or a rule of life, what are the first words that you find your mind drawing to when you look at this passage? Basically, what do you guess I'm going to preach on when you hear this passage read in the context of a sermon series on spiritual disciplines, a rule of life? For me, reading this passage really made me reflect on the conversations that I've had with people about their experience trying to practice the way of Jesus. <laughs> Basically trying to engage with these spiritual disciplines. The habits that form us. And there's a consistent topic, at least recently, that I've heard that I've been engaging with. And it comes from the depth of the soul. It's deep. It's challenging. It's a little bit uncomfortable. And this is the statement that I feel like I've heard time and time again, and I've said myself, I don't feel God right now. I don't feel God. 
In this season, my senses are not stimulated by divine activity. Put simply, I don't feel God. I feel like it's painful for me to hear because it's not foreign to me. There's no fix. This is not a fix to that statement today. But rather, I hope to actually engage. How do we actually engage with this statement that is rooted deep within us? Because often the next questions that follow are, what should I do or what am I currently doing wrong? Whether they say that out loud or I say that out loud, that's almost the assumption. What am I doing wrong? I've been doing the same thing and it worked at one point and now it's not working anymore. Upon reading Romans 12, the passage that we just read, I think that the interpretation or our doubt might sound like this when we engage with that. I'm trying to present my body as a living sacrifice to God, but I don't feel Him and I can't find Him, and so I don't think I'm being transformed by Him. Engaging with Romans 12, I think this is an assumption that we can play. I'm trying to present myself as a living sacrifice to this God, but I can't find Him, so I don't feel Him, and therefore I must not be transformed by Him. And so engaging with this posture, again, a posture that I've had, this week, as I was, or I guess last week and, and this week, just praying, Lord, what, how do we actually engage with that? And a, a question keep coming to my, kept coming to mind to me, which is, why do we often doubt God when we don't feel Him? It might sound like a simple question, and you might say there's a simple answer, but I actually ask you to think, to sit in your own experience of following Jesus or your experience of listening to others. Why do we often doubt God when we don't feel Him? And is it a necessary doubt? That's the question I want to... Is it necessary that we doubt God when we don't feel Him? For how consistent that it is, is it necessary? Must our lack of experience God with our senses set off a chain reaction of uncertainty? And so in light of these questions... Not to solve these questions, but in light of these questions. This morning, I hope to do two things with us the, um, in this time. The first is I want to revisit Romans 12, 1-2. I, I found that I was assuming things as I was reading it, and I, I invite us together to challenge those assumptions, maybe that are deep within the core of those of us who have heard this passage read many, many times. So that's the first part. Revisit Romans 12, 1-2. And the second part is that I want to move us into learning and engaging with a prayer practice that can help us hold space. So we're going to be talking about a prayer practice, and then at the end, for the last few minutes, we're actually going to participate together in the practice. And so, Romans 12, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them, to look as we engage with God's Word. St. Paul starts with this. In view of, or because of the mercies of God. This word for mercy isn't the typical word that would be used in the Greek. If you look a few sentences earlier in chapter 11, Paul says mercy a few times. It's a different word. 
This word specifically is is drawing us into the compassion of God. It draws us to consider, to look back, to bring to remembrance the ways that God has extended love and compassion to us beyond our own capability and control. God's character that challenges our ability to control. It invites us then, in view of God's mercies, to bring to sight mercy embodied, compassion incarnate in the person of Jesus that Paul cannot stop but talking about. This is not just mercies of God generally. This is specified in the person of Jesus. Embodied mercy. This is where we begin the discussion on spiritual habits. And yet, I think that this is a slightly different starting place than we might assume when we read this passage, when we might just jump to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's a different starting place, but an important one. It's not in our needing to find God but in in our steeping within His character and in His promises that He will dwell, Father, Son, and Spirit, making a home in our hearts. This is the mercies that God has in view. And Paul has in view for us to be invited into. An awakened posture. An awakened posture of awareness and receptivity. An awakened posture to awareness and and receptivity of where God is. And in putting Jesus in our range of vision, we cannot but acknowledge through the story of Scripture that mercy, the mercies of God, come in various forms. As we read the Gospel accounts, we see Jesus extending His love to those who need healing. And we see Jesus rebuking those who are rebuking those needing healing. We see Jesus in His teachings challenge our assumptions of what it means to lead. He challenges, informs at times of judgment upon the power structures that are not healthy for those who are hurting, for those who are broken. Because the other ways that we see mercy extended is to the enslaved. And yet we see Jesus also embody this by experiencing unjust trials undeserved torture, a gruesome death, and yet embodying a hope-filled resurrection and life anew. And so, friends, I encourage us, it's in view of the mercies of God that we present ourselves as sacrifices to God. And yet another assumption that I found myself making as I was reading this is do I assume that I bring myself to God as a living sacrifice, or do I assume that I bring my good works to Him as a living sacrifice? It sounds like maybe a simple distinction, but really important. Do we actually believe that we bring the entirety of our being before God as a living sacrifice, or are you maybe thinking at times when you're reading Scripture that we actually just need to present our good works to Him. Expecting that we might get a response that we will feel in the core of our being as a sign of approval that we've done the right thing. 
And so when I ask, why do I doubt God when I don't feel God? It's often because I've tricked myself into believing that I am entitled to feel like I'm in control. To put it another way, all my quiet times, including reading First and Second Chronicles, and all my volunteer time, which is at least one evening a week, and all my journaling, which can be quite expensive if you use field note journals, all of this stuff, I feel I can offer to God as if it's the meal that He wants, and like a good parent, after I present the meal, I'll have the hand of approval and warmth on my shoulder saying you've done a good job, and then I expect a few bucks to get ice cream, and then I leave. And then I actually expect that I can do the same thing again and again and again as if I have to bring this meal, these works, all these things, and that's the power of being in the presence of God when I think Romans is bringing us to something else. Because I realize analogies only go so far, but my assumption Reading Romans 12, 1-2 is that the spiritual journey is like a frustrating game of hide-and-seek. Or hot and cold. When I don't find, I don't feel. This is a really frustrating state to be in. If you've experienced it before, maybe you haven't. Not all of us have. But when I can't find God to impress Him with my sacrificial lifestyle, I, I find myself doubting. And this is where just over this week, I found at least three ways that I personally experienced this doubt. There might be more, but I invite us to consider at least three ways that this doubt takes shape. The first is this. I doubt that God is real. Put simply, I don't actually believe that any being divine exists. The first form of doubt. I doubt His proof. Second, I experience that I doubt that he's even here. So even if this God exists, I doubt that he would show up to this random group of people like he would maybe today. Or maybe when I'm reading scripture. Or maybe when I'm praying. I doubt his proof. Second, I doubt his presence. And third, I doubt that he's even worth my time. I doubt his power to transform me. Please hear me. These are really legitimate hesitations and doubts. They're felt. They're not easily fixed. And I don't know for you, in your falling of Jesus, if, if you've felt any of these, or one of these, or maybe you're currently feeling one of them. Again, these are legitimate places to be. And the linchpin for me as I was reflecting, what really rubs me is after all this work, after all, this is serious, it sounds like a joke, after all the money I've spent on seminary to get a job that's very well paying, um, after all of this, if God doesn't have the power to transform me, I might as well put my time elsewhere. I might as well put my time elsewhere. Because the world has a, has a lot of need and there seems to be a lot of resources. For those following Jesus, the danger is that we can be conformed to the world and not to the will of God. This is what Paul talks about. Romans 12, verse 2. 
Conformity to the world can easily become our supply of what it means to be satisfied. Uh, In the Greek, uh, this word conformity is in the passive tense. All that you need to know is that it is acted upon you. It is not an active choice. It's, It's something you actually receive upon yourself. This conformity. So sometimes we willingly place ourselves in these um, spaces, but some of us choose this subconsciously simply by slowly doubting God's power to transform us bit by bit by bit. That it's not actually worth putting our time into these spiritual practices we would call a rule of life. And so at this point, I, I realize that it may sound a little grim this posture of doubt, but I believe we need to engage with it because it's a real thing. But I do believe that there is something more substantial in the spiritual journey than feeling the presence of Jesus. I believe that there is something more substantial in the spiritual journey than feeling the presence of Jesus. It's resting in His presence. Which sounds simple. But I believe Romans, that's the posture that Romans 12 invites us to when we consider the spiritual disciplines. On Friday this week, uh, Nicole and I went to play around at disc golf at uh, Queen Elizabeth Park. And those of you who don't have AC could just imagine how dry the grass is at Queenie at this time of the year. And I have an abundance of pink-colored discs in my disc golf arsenal. Bright pink. I had it in my bag, and I forgot to bring it down. So, in classic Mitch fashion, the final hole as we're walking out, I throw the disc, hangs hard left, nowhere close to the pin. I know roughly where it is, so Nicole and I start walking, and then we stop, looking at the barren ground. Nowhere to be seen. Bright pink disc. I've been in this situation before. Very simple fix. You just need to keep walking. So I just keep walking, staring at the same, what seems to be the exact same patch of grass, brown grass, and sure enough, after moving a little bit, there it is. Very obvious. Would love to have seen someone watching me do this. Uh, Walk around, and even Nicole said, oh, it's right there. About 10 feet away. Lame story, I know. But I see that this posture is all I'm trying to get at is there's just times, I think, with Romans 12, with the spiritual disciplines, particularly in our way of prayer, that I think maybe we could be aided by a shift in perspective, a shift in view. Because I believe that we do not need to find or feel a God that we believe is already present. I don't think that we need to solely rely on trying to feel or find a God who we believe is already present. Because then we are actually invited to rest instead of searching. It's not simply to feel the satisfaction of finding God, but resting in the reality of being united to Him. Because at this space, beautifully situated at the point where our efforts can go no further, is the practice, at least what I found, of contemplative prayer. At this junction point where I can do nothing else 
I, I started leaning into this practice of contemplative prayer, which is, for my personality, maybe the hardest practice that I've, that I've probably done so far in my walk with Jesus. I'm someone easily distracted. Also, I don't like sitting. So, contemplative prayer at this junction. And yet, I've yet to find a more timely practice in growing in my awareness and receptivity to what Paul calls the mercies of God that we must have in view in order for any of these spiritual habits to make sense. It's not needing God to be found, but to be united with Him. Thomas Merton uh, has this book called Contemplative Prayer, and I'm on my third time reading. It's a short book. This is what he says near the beginning. Contemplative prayer is not so much a way to find God as a way of resting in Him whom we have found. Who loves us. Who is near to us. Who comes to us to draw us to Himself. This language of God drawing us to Himself. It's like the danger of a rip current that we don't actually realize is there until we realize how far we are being drawn from the shoreline. This is what Merton says is the gift of contemplative prayer. Not a finding, but being drawn by God. I realize that when you hear contemplative prayer, some of you might have a lot of hesitations. You might say, I don't have time. I don't have quiet. This is weird, mystical, meditative stuff that involves the emptying of our minds, so therefore we should not do it. All of these, again, I I believe are legitimate hesitations, yet I invite you to join me with a friend that I've made along the way. I've had this thing of trying to be friends with more dead people. It, again, funny, but it's been really helpful. So I want to introduce you to one of my newest friends, St. Teresa of Avila. Spanish mystic, 16th century. She was someone who struggled with prayer, struggled with a lot of distractions, and she wrote uh, to other nuns in her community. And she writes with a raw honesty, continually saying, I don't remember my last thought, uh, but I'm going to try again. Or at times, she reflects and says, I've actually never written it better than I just have. Throughout her whole work, and yet her book that I want to invite us to uh, engage with today is called The Interior Castle. It's a book on the inward spiritual journey. And she is someone, if you enjoy hiking, I found Teresa to be like me going to alltrails.com before going on a hike. She drops her coordinates. She's done it before, writing raw and honest reflections along the way, and also being sincere of what the experience is actually like. Similar to when we went to Cabin Lake a couple weeks ago, all the reviews said bugs, 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 bugs. I feel like Teresa of Avila just gives us these markers of what to expect. And yet she's convinced that contemplative prayer is worth our time. And so in this time, I want to share a little bit of what I found helpful from Teresa and her book, The Interior Castle. Then after that, we're going to practice for a few minutes before the songs are sung, uh, a moment of contemplation together. So, Teresa, her image of the castle, this interior castle, is our bodies. 
the dwelling place, the temple of the divine. It's not outside of us. It is our bodies. And this is what she says at the beginning of the book. What do you think that abode will be like where a king so powerful, so wise, so pure, so full of all good things would take his delight? What would it be like? Her answer is this, I don't find anything comparable to the magnificent beauty of a soul and its marvelous capacity. Teresa begins by declaring that these bodies that we have are beautiful. They're magnificent. Their capacity is beyond that which we can comprehend. And yet, she says, they go unexplored. She continues, we seldom consider the precious things that can be found in this soul. Or who dwells within All of our attention is taken up with the plainness of the outer wall of the castle that is with these bodies of ours. With our good works. With our good postures. She says we've actually missed exploring the interior. So often we are obsessed with these physical bodies and yet we seldom consider the precious things found within. She says later, so often we try to find rest outside of ourselves." And we don't even know how to rest inside of ourselves. This castle is made of clear crystal. It has seven dwelling places, seven mansions within, each having an entrance one to the other. None of the doors can be skipped. They all must be gone in order, she says. Our destination, says Teresa, is to the deepest and brightest center of this crystal castle. The throne room of God. She says in the center, in the middle, is the main dwelling place where the very secret exchanges between God God and the soul take place. Secret exchanges. I think of Paul, if you've read Romans 8. When he says that in prayer, when we don't have words to say, the Spirit of God binds Himself to our spirit. It comes out in, in forms that we don't even know. This is the place where that union is, says Teresa. From here, all the light that fills the entire crystal castle, our souls, our bodies, begin. And it's here where we find our wills in step with the will of God. Not needing to find, but actually resting. It's a journey to rest. Because it's actually very clear where the center is. Our destination, um, or sorry, excuse me. Teresa tells us where we should start and what is our aim. The whole aim of the person, says Teresa, who is beginning prayer, and she ends her book by saying, we are all beginners. And so the starting place for those of us beginning prayer should be that they work and prepare themselves with determination, with every possible effort to bring their will into conformity and union with the will of God who is enthroned at the center of ourselves. In this journey of spiritual union, there's stages to prayer. I love this. 
Often we just assume there's one way to pray. Teresa says, no, there's stages. There's movements. And so if what I'm sharing today actually doesn't resonate with you, there actually may be other spaces of prayer that God's inviting you into. So there's stages of prayer, but the role of contemplative prayer, what I want to share today, it comes right at the junction point, Teresa says, after the first three rooms and into the last four where she says, this is the time of the prayer of recollection, of contemplation. This is the point where human effort can go no further. In the first, second, and third dwelling, basically in our beginning experience of prayer, she says, so much perseverance is needed. So much obedience in times of, like, I'm just learning how to do this, so I'm just trying. And Teresa says, that's what these first stages are. So many efforts. She says we must, must push aside what she refers to as poisonous creatures that distract us, such as our work, unhealthy relationships, business affairs, financial concerns, the burdens that you feel in the world. That's her image. It's that there's these little creatures that come and block the shadow of light coming from the center. At this stage, we satisfy ourselves by ingesting sermons and podcasts and books that push us, rightfully so, push us closer to the person of Jesus. And it gives us the feeling that we are being transformed, which is true. At this stage, we pray in such a way that we feel satisfied. It's like if you put a bucket deep into a well, and it's actually almost life-giving how hard it is because you know the gift of refreshment at the end. That's what she says is these first three rooms. Many of us know this feeling where you feel like you've just been edified by those around you. You've been edified by books or, again, sermons or podcasts, the encouragement of others, by your own will to get up and read or pray. But up to this point, Teresa says that many of us have felt these glorious consolations. Consolations, Teresa defines as experiences we acquire through our own actions. Stuff that we do. They begin in us and they end in God. But it is here at this point, halfway through the journey of learning what it is to pray and be united to God, that Teresa says we start to experience dryness. It's expected that we will experience dryness. The point where we must believe wholeheartedly that God does not need our works, but the determination of our will. And so when our reading or our quiet times, any other spiritual disciplines, no longer give us the satisfaction of drawing up water that give us refreshment, Teresa says this. This is the line that I can't get out of my head. She says, out of dryness, draw humility. Out of dryness, draw humility. In the moment where we say we no longer feel God, Teresa invites us to draw humility, which she defines as meaning that we posture ourselves as not entitled or deserving the consolations that we've experienced. That's what humility means. It's saying, you know, we actually come to the point to say, God is worth pursuing regardless of the consolations that we feel. 
This, she says, is the hinge point filled by this time of contemplative prayer. And as many of you know who have experienced this dryness or this doubt of feeling, I think think you know or at least are aware of how much effort it's taken to get there and how frustrating it is when that effort seems like it just no longer works. Teresa says this, at this point, we may think that we are lost, that we have wasted the time spent before God. But the soul is perhaps completely joined with Him while the mind is on the outskirts of the castle suffering from a thousand wild and poisonous beasts. We should not be disturbed, nor should we abandon prayer, which is what the devil wants us to do. Teresa says, our souls, our very being, might actually be in the presence of God, but our experiences outside, our faculties, our senses, might not actually understand where the soul is. I think that's true. In lives that are filled with things that we can't control, illness and hurt, Frustration at work. Frustration of not getting into school. There's a point where we've, we've, since we can't feel God with our senses, we believe that our soul must not be united to Him. And this is where Teresa says, it, it is. Instead of passive conformity to the world, the desire of the devil, we're invited into the will of God what Teresa calls the prayer of recollection, which is contemplating God's glory. Teresa says that at this stage, consolations are replaced by spiritual delights. Consolations being things that begin in us and end in God. She says now those are transferred to spiritual delights which begin in God and make their way to us. Drawing us. This is the rip current being taken into God's presence. Practically speaking, in this moment, at least what it's looked like for me as I've been trying a few different ways of contemplative prayer, often it's quiet. It's not a prayer where there's much speaking, which is hard for me. Because I think I actually, being a verbal processor, I I almost create a defense mechanism because I'm actually a little bit afraid of being united to God. And so I use my words as a wall where Teresa says, no, this is actually pretty quiet. There can be words, maybe one or two, that draw you to Jesus, but not many words. It's a time of awareness, receptivity, and rest. And in many traditions, prompted by Scripture or gospel meditation, which we're going to do in a few minutes. In this time of prayer, we imagine God who has sincerely witnessed all the perseverance that we've, got, we've been giving to Him. All the obedience. Teresa says, God has seen all of these things. And then, God desires in His mercy to bring us back to Him. Like a good shepherd, with a whistle so gentle that even we almost fail to hear it. He makes us recognize His voice. This shepherd's whistle has such power that we abandon exterior things in which we were estranged to him. 
Don't th- I had this image of a whistle and I thought of my aunt gathering us at family reunions. That's not the whistle. <laughs> the abrasive whistle of gathering. This is a call, an invitation that we actually have to st- be still in ourselves to hear. A time of viewing the glory and mercies of God. Not an emptying of a mind, but the renewal of it that St. Paul says. It's not a time to evade or escape the realities of the world. It's actually to be more aware of what is happening. The goal is to rest in union with God in His presence. And yet I, I found, and some of it, this was my hesitation, is if I'm spending all this time in contemplative prayer, will I ever pray for people? The people that, the people that I really care about. I have never felt a stronger desire to pray that others would experience the rest of God since after I've tasted of what the rest of God means. That's for those who are hurting. That's for those in situations that, again, they have no control over. I've never found myself more aware and attentive to those around me of how I can reach out and care. Not saying I do it perfectly, perfectly, but I've actually never been so aware of what is happening. And Teresa says this, um, and we're nearing the end of the time. She says, it's the effects and deeds following afterward that one discerns the true value of prayer. There's no better crucible for testing prayer than our own imitation of Jesus, the mercies of God that are in our view. And so instead of doing and wanting to feel, we're drawn in and cannot help but imitate and be transformed by the proximity of God. It's moving from gathering the bucket up from the well ourselves to actually letting our soul be a garden that God reigns His presence over. And Teresa says that, similar, I was thinking of the rain garden outside, says over time the soul actually expands to take in all the mercy that God would extend to us. That there is no limit for we are made in His image to contain that, to contain the one in whose image we have been made. And so, at this time, I, I want to be practical. Uh, we're just going to have a, a time of what uh, Teresa calls prayer of recollection or something similar to it. I, I'm going to read a passage from Mark, uh, a gospel story. I'll repeat one of the verses, and at that time... We're, we're going to have a time of silence. And in that time, it'll just be a couple minutes uh, in my own practice too. Sometimes I actually quite literally time myself and I give myself three minutes or five minutes. It's not long. And after we read, I just invite you to ask this question. What are the mercies of God in your view when you hear of this scene? Maybe you can try to recreate that scene in in your own imagination. And you don't need to ask, what should I do? The bigger question to ask, and it's hard to explain, but the bigger question to ask is, what would it be like to be this close to God for you at this time in this place? We're going to end that time. I'll start reading the Lord's Prayer. I realize that I didn't put it on a slide, but we'll, we'll just read the Lord's Prayer together. I invite you, if you're comfortable, to say it out loud with me as a time to actually close. And um, at that point, the music team will come up. 
and they will play a song, and, and during that song, I'll hold up the elements for communion. And if you follow Jesus, if you say, I, I believe Jesus is the king of uh, dwelling within the throne room of my heart, I invite you to come up to take the elements and to hold on to them. And then I'll lead us in uh, taking communion together. So I will read the passage, time of silence. We'll read the Lord's Prayer. And then we'll move into a time of communion. So I have the passage up on the screen. It might be a slightly different translation. Mark chapter 8. Verse, starting in verse 22. I, I encourage you to at this time, which may be hard for you, to close your eyes if you feel comfortable doing that, um, just to limit uh, some distractions that you might feel. Mark 8, starting verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.